Hello, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic. My guest this week is Rabbi Eric Linder, making a return appearance to discuss all things technological and rabbinical and musical. Let's do it. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, Brett. So, big life news for you. You just had a baby. I did. Well, my wife did. But yes, uh, nine weeks ago. Nine weeks. I, I, I don't understand child development. What what stage is nine weeks? <laughs> you know what? I mean, we're, we're not sure if he's starting to talk yet, when he's going to college. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how this works. Yeah, so nine weeks still, unfortunately, uh, pooping in his pants, um, but starting to smile. And that's a recent development and an adorable recent development. I bet. Um, starting to discover his limbs a little more and a little bit more control, but still sometimes punches us when we're holding him. Hopefully not purposefully. My little brother had a thing about punching people in the nose. He gave me bloody noses. Ooh, well, you know, nine weeks, they're not strong enough to do that, even if they wanted to. But, oh, yeah. he, uh, he kept doing it well into his, his toddler years. Yeah, into his 20s. <laughs> He's a pacifist now. Um, yeah, well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so I, I basically want to split today's interview up into three parts. Uh, which we we discussed in the pre-show, but uh, stuff relating to your work, stuff relating to your music, which I'm super interested in, and then uh, a little bit of tech talk. So if that all sounds good to you. It's a triumvirate. I love it. I You may have noticed we're living in a pandemic right now. Um, I, I have. Unprecedented times, and you are a leader of a congregation. So tell me a little bit about how things have changed for you. Well, well, in some ways, um, they've, everything has changed. And, and um, you know, if it wasn't for the Internet, Zoom in particular, um, I think a lot of us would not be able to, to do some of the things we're doing. So, you know, wh- one of the, the things that's so central, I think, in any religious organization, certainly, um, you know, is proximity. You, you get together to worship. When someone has a wedding, you gather to celebrate, you gather to mourn. Sure. Um, you know, our regular weekly Shabbat prayer services, when people come together and we share food after the service and, and kind of what we call the, the oneg, which is the schmooze time following the service. And um, like most congregations, at least in my denomination of Reformed Judaism, our building is closed. I've been as a slight aside, I've been very keen to say that our building is closed. We are not closed. The community is open, but the building is closed. And you know, not being able to visit people, especially um, you know, people who are in the hospital, not necessarily for COVID, but just you know, getting scheduled operations sure. or sick, um, or where really hurts me is we have a, a few homebound congregants. You know, people who are elderly, um, that live by themselves, some in a nursing home, some not, and I cannot visit them. Um, and you know, for those with hearing issues, I I can't call them. And so things like that have been difficult. Um, you know, if anyone here is part of a a worship community, I'm sure you've had a similar experience of, um, you know, services on zoom or whatever platform. Um, it is something and thank God for it. Um, but it is not the same as, you know, being being in the same place um, and being able to kind of gauge reactions and play off of one another and and feeling the energy of the room, so to speak. Um, you know, there's a reason, I think, in Judaism why 
we have um, there's there's a rule that says whenever you do a formal prayer service, you need at least 10 people. Traditional Judaism, it's 10 men. Uh, in our version, it's 10 Jewish adults, which means men or women over the age of 13. And, you know, th that physical, again, proximity means something. It changes the caliber of the service. And so I, I have missed that. I know my congregants have missed that. And then just kind of you know, normally when I prepare for services, I'm thinking about the Torah portion. I'm thinking about what I want to say in my sermon. Um, I'm thinking about what sort of participation and readings I want to have. Now, in addition to that, I have to think about, okay, does everyone have the Zoom link? Does everyone know how to use Zoom? <laughs> are, are the videos that the people sent me in the right orientation, portrait or landscape? Like all of these kind of things that I have to do and any, any, I mean, and this is not, of course, unique to, um, to worship leaders. I mean, all sorts of jobs have been having to kind of reinvent themselves, but it is an added layer um, of complexity for sure. So have you, I mean, you've adapted to, to uh, the requirements of the pandemic. Have there been any innovations that new things that you're able to do or that you figured out how to do that have actually been uh, perhaps maybe not better, but uh, new and beneficial? Oh my gosh, abs absolutely. And so I'll give an, a personal example is my son's baby naming. So, you know, we, we did our son's baby naming over Zoom. And of course, you know, in a normal, I'm putting air quotes in, I hope everyone can see them. In a normal <laughs> time, a baby naming is done typically at uh, the family's house and you invite friends and family. And in our case, our plan was to invite our entire congregation and kind of do something in the backyard. Um, and then there's, again, food afterwards because we're Jewish, we eat. Uh, but in this case, so this part was not the positive. But what happened was people were able to join from all, not only all over the country, but I, I have a cousin living in Guam uh, that was on it. And so people that would not have been able to participate or watch the baby naming normally were. And that's been true for our weekly Shabbat services. We actually have a, a, a bar mitzvah this week where family members will be coming on from all across the country. And I've actually had a few congregants say to me, you know, when we do go back to something, you know, I don't want to I don't like to say back to normal because I don't know, you know, even if God willing, there is a vaccine and everyone is completely safe. I think this still may change how congregations absolutely do, do things you know yeah um and not again not just congregations and i've had a few people say to me you know i like the zoom service like you know people who are more introverted for example like being on without the pressure of being social for you know for example and and so there are some um I, you know i don't know if you call it a blessing or you know the silver lining but there definitely are some facets of this uh that we never would have thought of if, you know, we were just gathering in the sanctuary all the time. Yeah. So I, I don't know anything about church, but I do know that with my girlfriend's yoga classes, doing them over Zoom is obviously a very different experience, but it's it's close enough to socializing that a lot of people have been really into it. And I can totally see a hybrid moving forward. Like yep. if there's a time that we can all get back into the studio, probably having a laptop running in that front center spot instead of a mat 
would kind of make sense because there are a lot of people that have found out, you know what, I'm more likely to go to yoga if I don't have to go anywhere. Right. And I don't have to sweat in front of people or drive or yeah. And I can, just, actually, I was, I can hit mute anytime I want to. <laughs> that's right. I, I had a, a joke brewing in my head about, you know, it wouldn't be a stretch to, for your girlfriend to do that. Uh, yeah. Uh, wasn't quite there. Yeah, that's the same humor I use on the pulpit with the same reactions, by the way. I think it was David Sparks who recently wrote in his uh, either it was in his blog or his newsletter that, you know, if, if you consider an average commute of 30 minutes a day and you're not commuting. Now, again, hopefully this will not last a year. But if you add up all that time that one would normally be in the car, it's like six weeks worth of time or something. And so, you know, I, I feel like in some ways, it, it's easier to be productive. Welcome to my world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I have a question about Jewish sermons. I grew up. Okay. I grew up in the uh, in the uh, Baptist slash evangelical free version of Christianity, and I'm very familiar with those sermons. But I've never heard a Jewish sermon. Do you know? If you were to try to quantify or qualify the differences, how would you say a Jewish sermon differs from uh, an evangelical Christian sermon? Well, my my first response is because we're on Zoom, Brett, you're more than welcome to come on to our service. <laughs> my curiosity is endless. I, I might be willing to do that. I know. It's one of the things I love about you. Um <laughs> You know, I having not heard a tremendous amount of evangelical sermons and with, of course, the caveat that, you know, every rabbi is different, let alone every kind of denominational and the, every denomination and theological bent. I think one difference, especially true um, for me personally, and I think Reform Judaism is and this is may sound counterintuitive at first, is that we are not necessarily as tied to the text. And the reason that that's counterintuitive is because um, in Judaism, every week corresponds to a specific Torah portion. Um, so the Torah is the what we call the five books of Moses. Christians would call the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Exodus, Deuteronomy. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Perfect. You could pass fourth grade <laughs> Hebrews. Um, and each week is devoted to a few chapters, and they mostly go in order. So, um, you know, we start with Genesis around October and a holiday called Simchat Torah, which literally means the happiness of Torah. And then we end the Torah also on that holiday, and there's a symbolism of ending and then beginning again. But needless to say, every week has its own portion. And of course, every portion has its own unique stories or laws or rituals. So in some ways, it's very tied to the text. Um, but in Reform Judaism, one of the things that I know I do and my colleagues do is we will very often take something that's happening. So, you know, recently coronavirus, racism, you know, immigration, perhaps gun control and not necessarily political, but things that are pertinent in people's minds and kind of use the Torah portion as a buttress or as a foundation for kind of an analysis or an expose of that theme. And so it's not necessarily about the Torah portion per se, although sometimes I do give those kinds of sermons where, you know, I'll talk about how 
you know, everyone knows or most people will be familiar with Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the garden. And then Adam knew Adam was naked in the garden. And God said, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, here I am. And so there's this whole what we call exegesis about why would God ask, where are you? If God is omnipotent and knows exactly where Adam is. So that's the kind of like delving into the text sermon. And I sometimes give those. Uh, but more often than not, it's, you know, what does this speak to our current reality? How is this Torah portion relevant today? And I'm not suggesting that evangelical sermons don't do that, but uh, it's certainly a priority for me. The other thing, because I realized I didn't really answer your question, I, I think this might, is I don't often, and uh, certainly my colleagues, and, you know, there's certainly a, what do you call it, a self-selection here. But when I give a sermon, even if it's a political sermon and I'm kind of angry or hot under the collar, which is not my bent, political stuff is not like kind of my go to. But occasionally I think it's both important and necessary is even when I do that, I am not telling my congregants to necessarily do anything. I might suggest something. I might say that Jewish laws tell, says this or that. But there's no like, if you don't do this, you are, you know, going to whatever the Jewish equivalent of hell is or something like that. So that might be a, a big difference. Well, OK, so just to clarify, I guess what you describe is basically that's the formula for an evangelical sermon as well to uh, to take a, a bit of scripture and interpret it in the context of modern day. And they take a lot of liberties with the interpretation. And I don't know if it's easier to to interpret and contextualize Old Testament or New Testament, but they definitely take the most liberty with the Old Testament, uh, deciding what things mean. And I feel like Judaism has a, a what's the big book other than the Torah? I, so we, we use the word the Bible, but in Hebrew it's Tanakh, which is an acronym for Torah, uh, Nivi'im, which are the prophets, and then Ketuvim, which are the writings. And so all of those put together is mostly what Christians will consider the Old Testament. There's some um, order differences in some of the books, but it's basically so, you know, things like Psalms, Esther, Lamentations, all of those are part of our Bible. But right. the Torah, which is a subset of the Bible, is the most important. But there's a there's like an encyclopedia that is hundreds of years of writing by rabbis. The Talmud? Talmud, that's it. Um, I, I feel like you guys have a more um, kind of uh, academic approach to interpreting. And I know the, the Talmud is, uh, it's liquid, right? Like it's fluid. It's added in, to and removed it, from. Not anymore, but in a, in a metaphorical way, yes. Okay. But, in that, in that, there there are still discussions happening today over what does this page of Talmud mean? What, how do we live this law today? And that sort of questioning. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like your sermons are the same. I don't mean to use formula in a derogatory sense, but it's kind of the the same composition, uh, but probably a different way of interpreting. Yeah, you, you, I think you might have said that, first of all, much shorter than I did. And much, <laughs> because in truth is, um, it, it's probably not the format that's different as much as the 
you know, the underlying theology and philosophy of belief. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Reformed Judaism, in contrast to evangelical Christianity, is very flexible. There, there are very few things, if any, I mean, they'd have to be illegal, like according to, a, you know, our secular laws illegal. There's nothing that a congregant or I can or can't do that would, you know, cause them to be, quote unquote, kicked out or, you know, be labeled a bad Jew or something like something like that. Um, you know, there, there are certainly ways to be more committed and ways to be more active. Um, but Reform Judaism's um, prime motto uh, is choice through knowledge. Um, both for good and bad. I mean, there's definitely a critique to that as well. But the, the idea is that each Reformed Jew has both the right and responsibility for him or herself to decide what they are going to follow and by also what they're not going to follow. Yeah. And so there's no fire and brimstone. Th that would be my answer. There's very little fire and brimstone in my sermons. Sure. And so in in the Baptist church, there is a lot of fire and brimstone, a lot of black and white. This will send you to hell. This won't. Um, in the evangelical free church, in my experience, it's a lot more of the God won't be mad. He'll just be disappointed. Kind of like guilting <laughs> like, you into behavior. Like a parent. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Um, just uh, strongly suggesting things without outright. Although, I mean, there are things like they get very fire and brimstone over hot button topics like abortion. Um, right. And to some extent, homosexuality that they, they do take a very strong stand on. And, and by the way, if I'm being, you know, it, I think it's important to be intellectually honest. I mean, reform Judaism takes a very strong stance, certainly on homosexuality. It just happens to be the opposite stance. <laughs> But it is a strong stance. So, okay. and, and so that's where I, I revise my state, you know, uh, that, the, you know, the, the, the format of what we talk about is probably the same. It's just the actual content that's different. Okay. All right. Well, that answers some questions for me. I may have to attend uh, a sermon just to see, what, what's it called? You go to synagogue? What do you yes, go to synagogue, Shabbat service, temple. temple. Yeah. I'm, I might have to show up just to find out what's going on. Please do. An atheist in your midst. Oh, but by the way, and I think you and I have talked offline about this, is, um, it, it, again, counterintuitive possibly, but there are many Jews and many active, knowledgeable Jews who consider this, themselves atheists and, you know, and, and have thought deeply about it. And I know you also have thought deeply about it because you and I have talked about this. You know, I, I find that sometimes people call themselves atheists and they're just and haven't necessarily done research on what that means or the history of God or the history of atheism and or doubts and that sort of thing. And, you know, Judaism is interesting in that I don't think the Venn diagram of Jews and God believers or God fearers would be um, a Jewish way to put it. Like the awe of God, the fear of God is an important concept in Judaism. Um, it's more about awe than fear. Um, those are not a one-to-one -one ratio that one can be absolutely committed to Judaism without necessarily believing in God. All right. That is, uh... Uh, by the way, I'm not trying to convert you. I just want, I want to be very clear. <laughs> <laughs> if I were, if I were going to convert to anything, uh, based on what I do know, 
Judaism sounds like a, a decent fit for my sensibilities. Um, all right. So I want to talk about music now. I, there's also a, a good Venn diagram intersection of those two also Judaism and music, but, uh, well, yeah. I specifically want to talk about Klezmer where, where there is a strong intersection. Um, tell, can, can you define what Klezmer music is? Oh, I wish, uh, our bass player Dan was here with me. So Klezmer music is, uh, for those of you who are musical, it's in a minor key or lots of it is in a minor key. It, it's very similar uh, to music that's classified sometimes as gypsy music. Um, lots of it is incredibly danceable, but uh, there are also klezmer tunes that are more soulful and slow. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes called Jewish music, and I, our bass player, who's the founder of our band, Dan Horowitz, um, once talked about how it it combines the joy and the sadness of life at the same time, and and that is a fundamentally Jewish concept. Sure. Um. And so, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people, if they've ever been to a Jewish wedding or bar bat mitzvah, might know, you know, Hava Nagila, and that is klezmer. But um, that would be like saying, um, gosh, I. I can't think of an example. I mean, it, it's the kind of like go-to stereotypical example, but it, it it's a large body of music with a lot of variety. A lot of it is hard to play, especially because it's fast and there's a lot of unison things. And so for us, we have nine people in our band. And so if I'm playing, you know, me, the clarinetist, the violinist, um, and maybe the guitarist are playing the same complex melody line. Um, and, and so it has that that piece to it also. All right. So your band is Klezmer Local 42, right? Yes. And how many people did you say were in it? I believe there are nine. We're always changing, but I think there's nine. And what do you play? Uh, saxophone and a little bit of uh, vocals. I mean, we all do vocals, um, but saxophone. So how many instruments do you play? Well, play or play well, because those are play, very play. What what I do mean, you what do you, what what can you find your way around on? Yeah, so uh, saxophone, keyboard, guitar, uh, and a little bit of blues harmonica. Wow! All right. Does does saxophone like I played viola? Uh, I started on cello. I played viola uh, in chamber orchestra, and I can find my way around any of the orchestral string instruments um and i also play guitar which means i could find my way around a bass even if i'm not right. the best at it um does saxophone do those skills translate to other instruments i mean only in the sense of kind of understanding music theory and things like that the the fingerings of saxophone are similar to flute and clarinet and i'm actually embarrassingly one of the only people I know who plays the saxophone that doesn't know how to play a flute or clarinet. <laughs> All right. Um, but I have an electronic uh, wind instrument, an iwi it's called, that um, I've played it in the band once um, where, you know, it, it's basically a MIDI capable synth. And so you, it, it's saxophone fingerings, but you can get other sounds out of it. And so I've used it to to have a mute trumpet solo in a song. I've used it to make a clarinet sound. Um, but 99% of the time I'm playing my alto sax from high school. Cool. So I, I found uh, Klezmer Local 42 is on Spotify. And I had a really good time listening to Apple it. Apple Music also, if I can put in the little. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, uh, I, 
I have always had an affinity for that particular sound. And for me, it's it's manifested more in like uh, punk gypsy or gypsy yeah. punk. Like yeah, yeah. Gogol Bordello stuff. I was just going to ask you, Gogol Bordello, yeah. I love it. I love it. And I, like, I've never gotten to see Gogol Bordello live. Oh, that's if you can. I it absolutely. Is they, I don't go out for live shows much anymore, but I would go out for that one. I would we're go out to see. We're a lot of masks. I would go out to see your band too. I think it'd be I would, fun. I would love that. We actually, so last August, it's almost a year ago now, we recorded our second album and it's ready to be put out, but we want to do, or we wanted to do a live kind of album release. Um, but that looked like it may not happen and it may just release on Spotify and Apple Music. We're, we're still trying to figure that out. Is a lot of Klezmer in three, four waltz style? Um, some of it, but I wouldn't say a lot of it. There's a lot that's four, four. And then sometimes what happens again, you know, for people who are musical, there's a lot of double time and half time. Yeah. And so the tempo will stay the same, but you'll, you'll either speed it up or slow it down. Um, yeah. And I, and I think our first album, uh, fear of a Yiddish planet, um, (laughs) is a good sense of klezmer music we also have songs in there that are not klezmer we, we recorded a few um we have a very kind of international band which which i love and so i think we have five different languages represented on our on our record if i'm not mistaken um and uh, the the other thing this is more about our band than klezmer is um kind of taking the themes of what we love about music, which is, you know, collaboration and friendship and and molding them um, with Jewish ideas. And it, by the way, in our nine person band, I think three of us are Jewish. So this is not a Jewish band, but it is Jewish music, which is which is interesting. Yeah, that is um, what on a on a one of your band's albums. What's the ratio of standards to originals? I think it's. Uh, I mean, it's probably about half, you know, I, I, I know we delved into the copyright issue. And so we, you know, anything standard is obviously public domain. Um, but we do have a good number of originals and those, some of those tend to be, and this again, is just about us, not necessarily klezmer music is about who we are. So we have a song called Hebrew school, which is not klezmer at all. It's kind of a, I don't know what genre I'd describe it on. It's on the record, which anyone can stream. And I it's was just, just funny... listening to that song before we got on. Yeah, it's just a funny song about Hebrew school that anyone who ever went to Hebrew school or church or, the, you know, something akin to that, I think, can, can appreciate. Um, there's also a pirate song done in, in the style of Klezmer. Um, there's a French song that's almost like a lullaby. So, you know... Our band is incredibly musically gifted, myself notwithstanding. I am probably one of the weaker musicians in our band. We have some uh, incredibly talented people in it. And, um, you know, just speaking personally for a second, it for me, that not only, I mean, anyone who's in a band, of course, it adds to your life and it's a passion and you're learning, but it's a great counterpoint for me of, you know, kind of being on the bema, delivering a sermon requires one kind of energy and, um, you know, mindset, whereas being on stage, dancing like a crazy person and playing these songs is another one. But they're both part and parcel of the same thing for me. Uh, Spirituality of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Do you listen to much polka or I should let me ask that again. 
Because I know you don't regularly listen to polka, but have you listened to much polka? I, I have, but it, sadly, the first image in my mind was Weird Al Yankovic. But no, I have not <laughs> listened. Um, although I, 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 it's fine. I mean, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a connoisseur, but w- you know, if it would, was on, I mean, I would tap my foot and kind of, you know, shake my head back and forth. Yeah, I see parallels between polka and klezmer. Um, like I grew up in uh, Minnesota and Michigan mostly, and. Uh, in Minnesota here, there is a, a fairly vibrant polka scene. And I've been to square dances and had a surprisingly good time at square dances with live oh, polka bands. Oh, I love bands. square dances, yeah. It's fun, right? So fun. I, I did not expect to enjoy it. I, I, my parents had one for their, uh, their, their anniversary. I think it was their, I don't even know. I, I would be embarrassed to guess wrong how many years it was. But um. But they, my mom really wanted to have a square dance because that's how they met. And yeah, I had a really good time. Oh, that's so cool. I, I, I always wanted to be kind of one of the callers. I think that's just so fun. What are, what, what are the standard uh, dances for klezmer music? So w- there's, a, there's a term called fragish, which is not a, um, it's not a song, but it's when you take a couple songs and you either play them in the same key or in relative keys and so you go one after another and so again comparing to what people know of hava nagila that dance is called a hora yeah when you kind of just are in a circle and i mean it's nothing necessarily hugely coordinated but you know just frenetic movement and, and things like that and so we'll take five or six songs put them together with with some maybe some drum fills in between and you could have like a 30 minute what we'll call a fragish set and that's super popular during a wedding. That's what my wife and I did during our wedding. Um, and you could put standard songs in there. You could, you know, do your own thing. You could kind of sing lie, lie, lies, um, as long as the music kind of fits. Um, I One of the, the songs that is certainly kind of, it's the first song I learned with the band. I think it's one of the songs we play at every concert we have, partially because I mean, we only know like 20 songs, but also... Um, it is very popular. A Der Hazer Bulger. I want to say it's track one of our first album. It's either one or two. Um, and that really is is a, a good overview of klezmer music. Fast, frenetic, danceable, um, a, a, a melody line that's a little bit complex with a few people playing at once, some solos. Um, you'll hear that kind of minor key. Um, there is something, there's a scale uh, I don't know if it's called the gypsy scale or, you know, it's, I always forget those, you know, like um, Liguri, you probably know these as a guitar, Mixolodeon and all yeah. those scales. There is one specific to our kind of music. I want to say it has a raised sixth, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> Along with the minor third, definitely the minor third. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, all right. So. On to part the third, which is tech. So I know you're a big Apple guy. Yes. Would you say uh, for your work and your music, you're more of a Mac or an iOS guy, or is it about equal? Um, I'm probably more of a Mac guy, um, but I have a, a lot of apps on my iPad. Um, to make music with and that I can connect keyboards to and microphones. And I I haven't 
Well, I haven't used any of it in the last nine weeks, <laughs> but um, but I imagine that I will use the iPad stuff more simply because it's portable. If I have you know 20 minutes here or there, I can noodle around, make a keyboard riff, and record it. Whereas kind of my studio downstairs where, where I'm recording from now is kind of more of a you know I need a few hours of quiet. I need the lights just right, the air conditioning. Whereas you know the iPad, I can just kind of pick it up and, and do it. Yeah. What about for uh, preparing sermons? Is that mostly on your Mac? No, that's what I mean, mostly iPad or my MacBook. Okay. So, you know, being portable, sitting, well, the way I would used to do it is I would sit in a coffee shop and write or in my office. Um, But yeah, that's mostly portable. What apps do you use to write? Uh, It changes all the time. So uh, (laughs) my new workflow that I've been toying with is um, writing sermons. The actual writing is in Ulysses. And then um, I will export from Ulysses to my um, my blog, my webpage, and then I'll move it from once it's published. I will move it from Ulysses into a workspace of drafts that is tagged as kind of a sermon archived workspace. So if I want to look up a sermon I wrote, I delivered five years ago, you know, I can do that fairly easily. But drafts is unbelievable. I've, I've started using. Um, to go down a real geeky rabbit hole. Um, and I, I, I talked to you about this. I, um, I've been listening to Automators, yet another yeah. David Sparks podcast, along with Rosemary Orchard. Orchard or or- Orchard? Or- Orchard, yeah. yeah. Um, That's a beautiful name, then, Rosemary it Orchard. Is, it is, it yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of that, Rose Orchard. That's good, yeah. <laughs> um, and I through kind of a bunch of digging using OmniFocus, I discovered... Um, this a video she made that is incredibly easy to watch and understandable doing something that I think is relatively complex, which is, you know, for those of us in work or, or any situation where we have a project that's repeated, it, you, we, I can basically create an OmniFocus project now where I say, OK, so I'll give a specific example. Um, not you know, Sorry to be morbid, but when someone dies, for example, I want to contact the family a week after they've experienced the death, 30 days after they've experienced the death, and then 11 months after, because around a year, there's a there's a following ceremony called an unveiling. And so I now, in, in drafts, can make a template project, and then using this, scr- this draft script that Rosemary has, and it's easily, I could... Uh, I could send you the um, link to this video, Brett, if you want, for the show notes. Sure, yeah, please. Um, you know, I, I put it in drafts and then I export it from drafts to OmniFocus. And then depending on what kind of smart, I don't know if they're called smart tags, that's probably a term for this, but it'll ask me then, you know, get name of family member and I'll put the name and, and then it'll say get name, get date of death because that's in kind of its own tag also. And then it will auto-populate for, you know, all those things I want to do. And so not only does it save me time, um, but it also makes sure that, you know, I'm contacting people when they when they should be contacted um, and things like that have just been amazingly helpful. And I've been kind of a this is the second time this week that I've talked about that particular workflow, because I feel like any clergy member in particular who does these kind of repeated things that are multi step um, processes can, can use this. All right. I'll add OmniFocus to our show notes, too. Um so you talked a lot about, or you said you do a lot with the iOS and music. What are some of your favorite apps there? So um, 
for guitar, there's so many. And um, one that's a little more unique that I've been playing with a little bit, it's called Roxyn, uh, R-O-X-S-Y-N-T-H, Roxynth. Um, I believe the publisher is Viersyn, V-I-R-S-Y-N. They make a bunch of good apps. But what this does in particular, and if I am screwing up the name and spelling, I'll, I'll have that. I'll get that link to you too, Brett. Um, it basically turns your guitar into a synthesizer. And so it, there are many phenomenal, um, and you and I have talked about this, Brett, uh, apps that basically serve as... Um, you know, stomp pedals and amp simulators. Yep. This is not that. This is, it turns your guitar signal into a synthesizer where, you know, you can play with sine waves and oscillators. Um, and it's just really fun. Um, yeah. You get some crazy sounds out of it that's in some ways sound nothing like a guitar. Um, if you do want a great guitar sim, I, I really like Tone Stack. Um, that might be by the same company, actually. I think it is. Almost positive that it is. Um, so th those are some fun ones, and then um, keyboard ones. There, gosh, there's too many. There's too many to mention. There, there are just so many phenomenal and affordable. I mean, some are less than ten dollars for these apps that you could, you know, sink weeks into and still not kind of, you know, get everything everything out of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have so many synth apps that. I've never made great use of uh, as far as working into like my Logic Pro workflow because mm -hmm. I've never Audio Kit makes some great stuff that I've never really hooked into my keyboard to actually play uh, uh, not on the iPad to actually use as a software instrument and that I've I've yet to do. Have you accomplished that? Well, I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but I'll use. So I, I use Ableton Live, which is similar to logic i've never used logic and part of me is sad about that uh but it's like i mean you know what learning these things are like it's a whole language yeah for sure and so once you're in one you're kind of in it um where i'll have my so my ipad has an audio interface that connects to my computer so if i want to record something if i want to record an ipad app into ableton live i can do that um so the ipad will record the MIDI and then my main computer, Ableton Live, will record it as audio. And you have it hooked into a MIDI keyboard. Yes. What is this uh, interface you're using? I'm So I have a uh, Presonus or uh, Scarlet, uh, my, my real, when I say real, the one that um, goes from my iMac is the, uh, it's generation two. It's actually the one I think I wanted to sell you, Brett. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, th there's a third generation of it now. Um, and then my, my Mac or sorry, my iPad uses a, a complete audio six that I've had, I think for about 10 years now, which does the job just fine. Is that with a and K so, or a C? K. Yeah. That's what I thought. Made by native instruments. And then, so I can plug some XLRs in there, uh, and it has a MIDI port in there also. And so that goes out into a mixer that then feeds into my main interface, which goes into the computer. What kind of mixer do you have? I have, so I, I, my main one is a Yamaha. I have to stand up and look at the model number. MG16. All right. I assume that has 16 channels. It, it does, but um, they're not all the same. So some of them are, some of them are mono only. Some of them are designed more for, um, 
for an instrument input as opposed to a microphone input. But uh, yeah, yeah, and I like it because it has different zones and there's a lot of flexibility with routing. Do you do any recording for the band? I don't, which makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, what I joke about is it's less of a studio and more of like a lab. I call it a music lab because, I mean, I do have some microphones and pop filters, but it's much more easily used for people playing electronic instruments. Sure, sure. So, you know, if I have a few keyboardists over, I have a chaos pad. Yeah. Uh, do you know what that is? Yes. Yeah, way fun. back, way back from the 90s. I know what it came And they is. still haven't updated them either because they're good enough or because Korg has moved on. But um, and I do have a bunch of guitars that I could mic up to amps. But that's that's not my skill set. You know, like, where do you put the microphones next to the amps? <laughs> and that sort of thing. Whereas, I mean, that's what makes MIDI so easy. Is it's sure. just like there's no signal loss. It goes into your computer. Yep. Yeah, I haven't done miking for years. It was not a skill I ever got really good at. I knew how to like off-center a mic on an amp, but not how to actually tune it to get the right. best sound out of it. And it takes so long. I mean, I, I, I'm not, as anyone who knows me will tell you, I am not the most patient person in the world. And when we recorded our second album, I kind of forgot. Um, have you ever been in a studio, Brett? Like <laughs> Oh, yes. It's just like you're sitting there for two hours before you even play a note. The because, only you know, thing that made studio time bearable for me when I was in bands was heroin. That is. I am not a person because we would be in there for up to 48 hours. And I'm not a person who can sit and wait or even even if I'm actively participating, doing the same thing for more than an hour gets boring for me. I have ADHD. I get bored easily. Yeah, studios can be horrible for me. Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing our band mostly likes each other because we were nine people oh, kind of sure. up in this in this basement. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I just had this feeling, I having not done it before, it's just like, oh, we're just going to play our songs. But, if, you know, I should know better both as someone who does some recording and just kind of, you know, you want to record the best version of yourself. And when someone misses a note, which when there's nine people, the odds of that are just more and more. When 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 a band like Klezmer Local Forty Two records, uh, how much multi-tracking do you do, and how much do you play together? They, it's mostly all together, actually. Um, I mean, part of it is just who we are as a band, and you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna pay for the kind of studio time or engineer or anything like that. It's also not who we are. Yeah. You know, I I've joked with the band before that what we lack in kind of um, you know perfectionist tight timing and everything we make up for in, in fun and energy. That's not to say, by the way, that we don't have timing. I mean, but when you hear our album, I mean, you, you can hear that it's not perfectly on the click track every single note. Um, but uh, what what is multi-track is sometimes the drums, vocals, and then certainly harmony vocals. Yep, that so like sense. that song Hebrew School that you listened to, that was multi-tracked a little bit. Um, but the but most parts is just we'll play through the whole song. We'll decide if we like it or not. And um, if not, we'll record it again. Sometimes we'll record two, even if we did like it. Um, but the other issue is for woodwind players, myself and the clarinetist, um, you know, we can't play for that long <laughs> because of my, my mouth just feels I, I feel like George R. Binks when he's like, you know, he, when he gets shocked in um, Fan of Medicine, he's just like his mouth is all slack jawed and he can't move. Like, that's what it's like after playing for a while. So, you know, 
we we don't want to do a million takes. Have you ever watched uh, an interview with uh, Billie Eilish on her recording process with her brother? No, but I think I read something about this. I'm, I'm. If you can send me a link, or I'll remind myself to to read that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll find. Uh, I watched a really good interview, uh, but her, uh, the the vocals on "Bad Guy." I don't know if you've ever heard that song, but I've heard the album. I don't know the songs by name, but I mean, I'm they're they're incredible. She she layers, uh, like at least five layers of vocals, all perfectly synced so it almost sounds like one weird affected voice it, it's oh, it's pretty cool but if you've spent time in a studio you'll 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 uh relate to the feeling of sitting and it's just her and her brother in his room basically they recorded that entire album when we fall asleep uh just on like a mac and i know it's... in a bedroom it, it's i'm i'm a big fan and then I look at all this stuff I own and all my plugins, and it's like, what? Wow, <laughs> there, <laughs> right? there really is something to be said for talent. <laughs> all right, so that brings us to the top three picks. Uh, as I've mentioned on the last couple episodes, I I burnt out coming up with three of my own every time. I'll throw one in here and there where it seems appropriate, but this is going to be about you and your top three picks. So, what's your first pick? So. Uh, not particularly, um, I, I feel like a lot of people are talking about this, but um, I went for a walk with um, my son, Aaron. Um, my wife was working and it was my day off. And so we went to the park, um, the botanical gardens here in Athens, Georgia, which are absolutely beautiful. And there were very few people around. Um, and I was walking, uh, listening to the new Taylor Swift record. And it was just this really nice kind of introspective, somewhat bittersweet you know, I'm looking at my son and I'm thinking about, you know, what it means to have him in my life. And then listening to this album that in some ways is about loss and heartbreak and kind of nostalgia to a certain degree. And there was just this kind of beautiful, um, it was just a really interesting feeling I had. And I've, and I'm really digging that, that album. Um, you know, and uh, I think someone else said this. It might have been um, uh, Federico Vitici that it doesn't sound like an album that was produced in a home studio, you know, that just kind of shadow dropped because of yeah. Corona. I mean, it, it's professionally done. The The instrumentations are sparse, but but it fits the music. I don't know. One of her quotes I may use in a in one of my high holiday sermons Um I, I I was walking with Aaron in, in the crib and she sang this line and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I just plugged it in drafts. So I'd remember, remember to put it in my, uh, sermon. So that's one. Wait, what, what was the quote? Oh, but if I say it, then, you know, what if oh, Kyle fine. In it? No, this, no, I, I, this isn't coming out until a couple weeks after we record. So you've got time. Uh, no, I'm mostly kidding. It, I, I'm going to, probably get the exact quote wrong. I'll have to look it up on Apple lyrics, but um, <laughs> it's something like the best films of all time have not been made. And um, without, you know, I know religion was our first topic, but um, <laughs> we've moved on. Yeah. Circle back. Um, <laughs> there, there's this very um, fundamental idea during the holidays of returning. Um, like when we return the tourist to the ark, we say, turn us a God you know, return us to days like in the past. And there's this interesting thing about we're moving on to new parts of ourselves, but we also ask to be returned. 
And so this idea of, you know, the best films of all time have not been made. It's this idea that the future not only will be different than the past and certainly in light of Corona. So, you know, it's not that we're going to get back to normal. We could actually get back to a better normal. And so the best parts of ourselves are still waiting to be discovered. They're not in the past. All right. Nice. All right. What's number two? Number two is Duolingo. Ah, yes. Not a new app by any stretch of the imagination, but um, especially after my son's been born, I'm a fan of things that make me feel productive that I can do in 10 or 15 (laughs) minutes. And so, um, you know, about a year and a half ago, I was, uh, so Duolingo is a language learning app. I think they have every language available, including Klingon. I am not studying Klingon, although it would be fun. Um, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I started doing Spanish. I, I got on a good streak and then just fell off. And uh, I don't know, about a month ago, uh, I, I decided I wanted to start it up again. And here or there, you know, 15 minutes here, 10 minutes there, I'm trying to do at least between three and five lessons a day. And it's working. Um, you know, I could, I could say that I, I'm hungry now. So, um, but, but that's one of my picks because it, I like things that, um, you know, I like learning new skills. I think learning a new language helps us think in different ways also. Yeah. And so, and it's fun, you know, it's kind of a gamified experience. So, so that's, that's number two. I, I sat down with a, we'll say almost legal copy of Rosetta um, a few years back and tried to learn German and uh, failed. I failed at that, but I am curious about learning more languages. I took, did you do it on a computer or on, or on mobile? This was this was prior to the invention of the iPhone. Oh, okay. So, so when I say a few years, a decade or so. Got it. Um, but yeah, on a, on a on a computer, it yeah. Like I got I got a little ways into it, but not enough that I was actually able to put together my own sentences. At which point, I lost interest and was left with just some basic conjugation of common words. But, right. Um, was aben mein Eltern falsch gemacht. I mean, that sounded good. It did. It means, what did my parents go wrong? And the only, what did my parents do wrong? And the only reason I know that phrase is because I had a t-shirt with that on it in high school. Oh, well. Um, I like that. I, I, I will learn, I will learn another language someday. Uh, Duolingo actually sounds like a good solution because my attention span is not good for hour long lessons. Right. And, you know, it, it's, I, I do pay for the the yearly subscription just because I am I feel like if I pay for it I'll actually use it more. The free app has all of the features just occasionally there's an ad and it's not like the obnoxious apps that make you watch like a 30 minute video or anything. It's just <laughs> like a little ad that pops up kind of interstitially. Cool. I can live with that. I can also I I if I use something I pay for it. That's Right. It's I don't know if it's a, a an ethic of mine. But I just prefer it's not a matter of hating ads. It's a matter of choosing to support things that are. Yeah, that's a positive way to put it. And as a developer, I'm sure you can appreciate that distinction also. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Number three. Number three is a is a iPhone or iOS game I've been playing. Um, It's called Life Slide. It's part of uh, Apple Arcade. Um, So, you know, if you're an Apple, I I feel like I'm like uh, Phil Schiller, before he took his new job, you know, advertising all of these Apple things. Um, Although I'm upset with Apple right now because of its beef with Microsoft and the xCloud gaming, but that's a whole nother show. Um, 
So Life Slide is, it's kind of one of these like Zen-like games where you fly this paper airplane around. The music is really nice. It sounds delicious um, with a pair of headphones. And again, you could play it in five minute chunks. And there's all these stages and the stages are meant to correspond to the stages of life. And so there's this very kind of loosely, um, a loose metaphor about um, the creation of life or the, you know, being born all the way to death and, and the graphics change in some ways to represent those different motifs. There is some challenge involved in that you're, the planes have a health bar and you uh, gather these gems, which let, let you upgrade the planes. Um, and you do kind of quote unquote die and you have to start a stage over. Um, but there's also this, I think that it's literally called Zen mode where you just fly through these beautiful graphics and, you know, the sound of the plane when you catch the air is this really kind of, I think it's called AMSR. Is that, do you know what I'm talking I, about? Brett? I know the exactly sound. what you're talking about, but yeah. I never remember what it stands for or what the yeah, actual. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. My wife's a therapist. And so we were talking. And so it has those kind of relaxing sounds to it. And again, it can be played in very small chunks. I could get into that. I keep going back to threes. Like it hurts me. <laughs> it's like I'll, I'll play an, an Apple arcade game and I'll either beat it or get bored with it and then end up playing threes. And it's like still after all these years, it's my go-to game. And it, I, it makes me angry with myself that I can't move on and find like a new obsession. Yeah. Like my top score is like 158,000 now. Well, that's that's my thing with threes is, I mean, it's a, it's an incredible game. And like for, you know, so many reasons that have been talked about before, but like once I get a particularly high score, I don't want to play again. Oh, because see, it's, I do. I just always, it's a, it's an obsession for me. Oh, wow. I saw Letterboxd had a recent app. You and I used to play that a bunch. I still play that with my girlfriend almost daily. Okay. Or letter, letter press. Wait. Oh yeah. Letter. Letterpress. Letterbox yeah, is a movie is a movie collection app. Right. That I've, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. I, I I really enjoy a game of Letterpress. For me, a turn takes like max two minutes because I just pick a word and go. Uh, I I've discovered recently that it takes her like twenty minutes to find exactly the right oh, like word. The optimal. <laughs> yeah. Like she puts way more effort into it than I do. So now I understand why I'll play a turn real quick and then won't get a response for a day. Cause for her it's like a time investment. Cause she oh, sits and tries, like she'll find a word and then be like, No, I really want to use that why. So I have to start over and I just I can't imagine the patience that goes into that. Right. Yeah. I, I would play it more like you or i do play it more like you <laughs> i'm okay with losing i just like playing words right um, all right well thank you eric thank you um, always good talking with you you'll have to uh I, I don't even know what day uh uh synagogue is on temple what day do you go to temple well so the services are friday evenings for shabbat so friday after sunset is when shabbat starts okay send me a send me a zoom link I will. I'll I show up. To. I'll turn my video off and show up just to listen. You don't have to turn your video off. Um, yeah, we'll see. As long as you're not wearing anything offensive. <laughs> I don't wear offensive things. No. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, and uh, send me a bunch of links for the show notes. And all right. Thanks again. Thank you, Brett. Stay healthy. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Systematic. 
Check out more episodes at systematicpod.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Find me as TT Scoff on all social platforms and follow Systematic at Systemcast, S-Y-S-T-M-C-A-S-T on Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>